our Palm Sunday scripture reading is the account of the triumphal entry as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke. And I'll start reading in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they are untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as the congregational pastor here at Midtown. And uh, as we enter into Holy Week together, I realize we have uh, guests with us. Uh, this is the time of year when people uh, get interested in church again, maybe. And so we're glad that you're here with us this morning. But let me ask you a question as we get started in this passage. When you, when you look at Jesus, and you think about the story what do you see? I mean, I mean this like a question, like I want you to ask yourself. What, what are the optics that you bring with you this morning as you see Jesus? One of the more interesting things in this passage in Luke 19, in verse 37, it says that this group of disciples praised God because, they, because of what they had seen. And I wonder what your optics are this morning on Jesus. Like we've, we've become so familiar with the story of Jesus Many of us grew up in church, some kind of denomination, going to church since we were babies, maybe baptized into the church. But I wonder how you see that now for most of you as adults. Is Jesus to you just kind of a residual, you know, thing that's left over from childhood? This like felt board character from, uh, you know, many decades ago that has no relevance to how you live your life right now, but seems familiar, right? Like, there was an article, uh, Jessica Meisner writes for BuzzFeed, there was an article that she had a couple years ago called, Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. And the article was all about kind of how she grew up in an evangelical church, left the faith at college because of some intellectual reasons, but how there was this sense of nostalgia that she had about uh, what Christianity did for her. And she says, I, I don't believe in it, but I miss him. 
Is that the situation that you find yourself in if you're honest this morning? Is Christianity maybe for you Jesus? Do you see Jesus as just a ruse? Some kind of convenient myth, as Beth mentioned, a crutch for weak and needy and dependent and inferior people to lean on, to face the brutality and the violence, the fear of life in a broken world. Is that how you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as some kind of contractor, right, that, it, that kind of fetches certain things for you, that's useful you, to you to get what you really want, like, Jesus, I need a girlfriend, desperately. Uh, or, Jesus, I need a date. Let's start there. Jesus, I, I need a certain socioeconomic status. Jesus, I need to get through my boards. Jesus, I need this job. Jesus, I need this house. Jesus, I want. Like, is that what Jesus is for you? You're kind of a private contractor that you outsource all of the things that you can't handle for yourself. Is that how you see Jesus? What are the optics for you this morning as you come to the triumphal entry of Jesus? And what are you going to do about that? Like, I think for some of us, we're just not honest with how we really see Jesus. We don't think about it a lot, but when we come to this passage, we're forced. Jesus is essentially forcing us to be honest about how we see him. And he's forcing us. He's kind of provoking a response, provoking a decision. He doesn't allow us just to stay neutral. He confronts us and says, how do you see me? What are you going to do about it? We have uh, the book of Luke, if you are unfamiliar with the larger narrative. This is a kind of a key point. It's somewhat of a pivot in the book of Luke. Um, Luke was written by a, a man named Luke, a historical person. He was a doctor. He was a physician. And he wrote in Luke chapter 1, he says, I'm writing this to skeptics to convince them about the reality of who Jesus is, that he really came, that he really lived. He said, I've done an investigation. He's an investigative journalist, and he goes out and he interviews all kinds of eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, and then he essentially tells their story, and he says, I'm, I'm writing these things so that you might believe, so that you might be convinced that what I've seen, what I've experienced, could actually be true, and then it might change everything about you. And, and that's the thing I think we forget sometimes. We approach these like myths. We approach these like childhood stories. But these people saw something, right? John, one of the disciples who probably was here in this crowd, goes on later to write another letter, and he says, these things about Jesus we have seen, we have touched, we have heard, and we just tell you what we've seen and what we've experienced, that you might also have life with God. And so the optics and the way that we approach this are really important. Jesus, throughout the book up until this point, has been kind of hushing people, silencing people as he heals, as he does what he does. He says, hey, don't tell anybody. But now we have, for the first time, Jesus going very public. This is kind of Jesus' IPO moment, right, you could say in the book of Luke. He's going public with uh, who he is, to leave no doubt about his identity, to leave no doubt about his call to response. I'm not just a good teacher I'm not just a moral instructor. I'm not some kind of like quasi-yoga instructor who just kind of goes around giving people groovy vibes. I am a king. I am your king. I am the king of the world. That's why I came. And so we have here, again, 
thousands of people from around the world coming in for Passover, from every nation of, of, of Jews and non-Jews coming together for the Passover. I mean, the Passover, if you can imagine a couple years ago, if you can remember watching Desert Spring, watching just the, the, the fervor of, of kind of the cries of, of oppression and the cries for deliverance, that's a, that gives you a little bit of a taste of what Passover would have looked like. Thousands of Jews gathered together, nationalism running high, right? That's, we learn in the other gospels that there are palm branches being waved, okay? That's not just some like hipster thing that's happening here where it's like, oh, there's some palm branches here. Let's do this cool thing. No, that, that was a symbol. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna, save us. The idea of palm branches were symbols of, of kind of uh, allegiance. They were like, they're, 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 flat, they're American flags. They're waving them saying, God, save. God, would you save us? And so what I want us to see here in this passage um, is two responses to this declaration here. Blessed, I mean, this is, the, this is Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Only in Luke, well, there's two, but Luke primarily we see, uh, he doesn't say anything about Hosanna. Remember, he's writing to a non-Jewish audience. And it's not blessed is the one who comes, which is what Psalm 118 says. It says, blessed is the king. And so Luke is leading us to a conclusion about who Jesus is. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there's two responses to Jesus. And there can only ever be really two responses to Jesus. One is to rejoice in the reality that he is king. And the other we see, ironically coming from the religious community, rebuke. Right? Rejoicing or rebuking. And that's the same invitation that we, I think, face today with this passage. And I want you to not just hear this as a story from a time in a galaxy long, long ago. But I actually want you to enter into this emotionally. I want you to enter into this personally, and I want you to see if you can't locate yourself in the optics of the story. Do you see Jesus as his disciples saw him, or do you see Jesus as the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw him? And what are you going to do about it? That's the confrontation that Jesus invites us into this morning. So let's look first at the rejoicing. Rejoicing in the king. So Jesus rides in on, uh, in the middle of the Passover. We call this the, the triumphal entry. And so Jesus uh, carefully architects every moment here as he arrives. He sends his disciples ahead, and it's, it's kind of a bizarre thing. He sends them to a town to go fetch a colt, and uh, it gives very specific instructions. Um, again, the point here is that Jesus is in control. He is not a victim, right? He's not a hapless victim of Roman oppression. He is absolutely, utterly in control of every detail of what's happening this last week. And we see here this paradox of the kind of king that Jesus is. He brings together characteristics that you don't normally associate with kingly power. We think of kings and we think of despots, right? We think of people who abuse their power, who are corrupt power mongers. And so do we see that power in Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Jesus has all authority, and he's been making that clear throughout the book of Luke. 
But we also see with Jesus mixed with that power is this incredible humility, this incredible vulnerability, this willingness to to be weak, this willingness to suffer. And so look here, and you see that paradox. Two things we see and you notice about this paradox. First, we see this declaration, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace, this idea of peace is the, is the word shalom. This, this harkens back in the Jewish imagination to the Old Testament, to this longing that people have to be made whole, right? It's an idea of wholeness. It's a longing for integration, right? What we experience in our lives every single day is not wholeness. We experience incompleteness. We have an ache, right? There's this deep ache that we cannot explain. I mean, perhaps nobody, if you want to listen to a lecture of somebody talking about the ache for wholeness, there's probably no better one than David Foster Wallace's commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College. I'm not going to read it to you, but like even people who are not followers of Jesus feel the ache, the longing for wholeness, the longing for what the Bible calls righteousness, for the world to be made right. And in the midst of Roman oppression, under the shadow of imperial Rome, you have a people under that boot, crying out for deliverance, crying out for liberation. And they, in their minds, when they say these words, they are appealing to the power and the authority of King Jesus. Would you do what we cannot do? Would you save us? Would you liberate us? Would you bring shalom? This is the idea here of a Messiah, right, in the line of David, a political ruler. This is not some kind of spiritual liberation they're crying out for. They are crying for, out for Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what everybody thinks is happening in this passage. But they believed he could do it. They saw his power. They believed that he could liberate them on the basis of what they'd seen, what they'd heard, what they'd experienced in their own lives. The second clue we get into this paradox is how Jesus rides into the city. He rides in on a colt, a young, unridden colt, a little donkey, right? Like, if you are IPOing in our day, right, like, like somebody would want to pull Jesus aside, maybe an image consultant, some kind of brand manager, and say, hey, this is not how you launch a company. You should be riding in on a war horse, You should be decorated in military outfit. You should have an entourage around you of, you know, like really strong, strapping people. And yet Jesus intentionally chooses not to ride in on a war horse, although he could have. He rides in on a little donkey, looking like a fool. And that's what we see here about Jesus is that He had the kind of strength that wasn't afraid of vulnerability and weakness. Matter of fact, that was what his life was about. It was about emptying himself of power, redirecting his power for the good of other people. It's a strength that is true strength. It's not a a pretense or a posture of strength, which is what we think of when we think of bravado and machismo and strength. It's projecting an image of strength while on the inside, there's a hollowness and an emptiness and a fear and shame. Jesus came with true strength, a strength through weakness, a strength full of, brimming over with vulnerability. 
That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Look at, um, look at this. This is, a, this is, again, the fulfillment of a prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was consciously aware that he was tapping into this collective imagination. But he's also reframing it. He's also saying, you want a king who's going to come and destroy the Romans. I've come to be a different kind of king. I've come to be a king who's weak, a king who's vulnerable, a king who's humble. The kind of king who you, whom you can trust with your heart because I'm not going to abuse, but I've come to empower. I, I've been thinking all week about um, what kind of people would have been in this crowd. It's, it's really amazing if you read the book of Luke, and I went back and read uh, a large chunk of it this week, to think about who would have been in this crowd. Again, we think of disciples we think of Christians, and for some of us who are not churchy people, we just think of like buttoned up, self-righteous, religious people. I mean, we would have felt very uncomfortable in this crowd of people. I mean, do you know who's in this crowd of people? Like, what's interesting about Luke's account of the triumphal entry is he doesn't talk about the crowd. This is the only one of the four eyewitness testimonies on the triumphal entry to not, talk about the, to not talk about the crowd, but instead to focus on the disciples. These are the disciples. There's the disciples, and then there's the crowd. And it's interesting because we'll often say things like, well, uh, there's a fickleness to, the crowd, uh, to this group of people. You know, they're praising Jesus on you know, Thursday and cruci- or uh, on Sunday and crucifying him on Thursday. Not this crowd. This is actually his core. That's actually false about this group of people. These are his disciples. These are his people, probably somewhere around 120 or less of his core disciples. And notice what they're saying about Jesus. Notice the way they see Jesus. The multitude is gathered together, throwing their cloaks on the ground. Again, this is a coronation, right? This is, this is a coronation ceremony. They are believing that Jesus the king is riding in to smite their enemies. The whole multitude begins to rejoice, Rejoice in the healing that's coming, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospels, mighty works is kind of a, a summary statement for all the Gospel writers of the, this paradox of Jesus' leadership, the healing ministry of Jesus, right? That's the mighty works. It's literally one word, dunamis, which just means power. The power of Jesus comes riding into town. The power to heal. The power to save. The power to upend power structures. This is what Jesus has been doing throughout the book of Luke. He's been doing two things primarily in his healing ministry. These mighty works. Forgiving sin and healing people's bodies. And, and, and in Jesus' mind, those are not dichotomy. Those are not, that's not some kind of uh, false dichotomy. Sometimes he'll heal bodies first and he'll say, oh, you think that's hard for me? I just forgave their sin too. Other times he'll forgive their sin and people are like, who do you think you are? And he's like, well, let me show you. I'll just heal their body as well. I mean, there's this holistic ministry of Jesus. And and the kinds of people that Jesus healed were not buttoned up religious people primarily. Matter of fact, they're the ones rejecting him throughout the book of Luke. 
Who's in this crowd? Do you know who's in this crowd? Formerly demon-possessed people. Lepers are in this crowd. Socially stigmatized people, right? Um, the disabled are in this crowd. Tax collectors are in this crowd. The lowest of low in, in the Jewish imagination. Tax collectors are in this crowd. Traitors. High-ranking military officials are in this crowd. Widows are in this crowd. The sexually broken are in this crowd. Women are in this crowd. Wealthy women at that. Patrons of Jesus' ministry, Luke 8 says. Children are in this crowd. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said a few chapters ago. The blind beggars are in this crowd. People who couldn't even see Jesus, they just said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then the 12 disciples, including Judas, are probably in this crowd. What united this motley crew of people? Like, this is just not a group of people we ever see in, in, like, the church together. And yet, Jesus, there's an attractiveness to Jesus, right? Like, Jesus was attractive to broken people. What was it that united them? I think the reason that they were rejoicing, the reason they were worshiping and praising God is because they were united by a common understanding of their own inner brokenness, of their own inner darkness. And we see throughout the book of Luke, their desperate trust in Jesus as the only one who could actually heal them. First and foremost, they understood that, yes, there is a darkness outside. Yes, there is a darkness in the Roman Empire, but they themselves, it says, have seen and tasted and touched the mighty works of God, healing them inside, healing their bodies externally, and they're rejoicing in that fact that Jesus had mercy on them. I mean, that's the most important thing to this group of disciples. And I would say that, is the same for us today. The reason that some of us can see a passage like this, we can hear songs about this, and we don't rejoice, is because we ourselves have not experienced what they experienced. For some of us, we don't even see the inner darkness. We're so focused on the darkness out there. We're so focused on the darkness in the political realm, in the educational realm, in the city. We're focused on what everybody else is doing wrong out there that we refuse to see the darkness in our own hearts. We refuse to see ourselves not only as victims, although all of us are in different ways, we refuse to see ourselves also as victimizers, as perpetrators, as participants in the very darkness that we find ourselves constantly criticizing on social media and around dinner tables, and in our offices and arguments with coworkers. When was the last time you said, hey, you know what? That's me in that argument. G.K. Chesterton was reported one time, uh, they had like some kind of an essay writing contest, and they asked people to contribute pieces. They said, what's what's wrong with the world? This is like, you know, a century ago. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, just a master writer, master thinker, philosopher. You'd expect him to like break down all the darkness and the evil and give a really comprehensive explanation. He writes back with these simple words. The problem with the world is me. 
they saw the darkness inside of them. And they experienced the healing that Jesus brought. That's why they were rejoicing. I am broken. I am messed up. Not only because people have sinned against me, but because I have sinned against them. I am a sinner as well as a sufferer. And the more dialed in I am into that reality, the more I will see and rejoice in and worship God that he has healed me of my fear, that he's healed me of my guilt, that he's healed me of my shame, that he's healed me of my bitterness, that he's healed me from the inside out. I mean, the healing of Jesus is so powerful, so tangible. You know that you even see it here in in his relationship with the animal? Like, I don't know if you, like my sister uh, was into, uh, I guess you call it equestrian sports growing up. Um, My dad raced horses. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, right? So that's what we do in Kentucky. Um, But I was around horses a lot. And what I know is when when you buy a horse, you don't just throw a rider on it and say, giddy up. Like, I don't know a lot about horses, but I don't know if you know it. If you've ever tried that, what happens when you just put a rider on a colt that's never been ridden before? Rebellion, right? Resistance. Lots of blood, right? And trips, trip to the hospital, probably. Again, Chesterton had a funny quip. I think it's Chesterton or George Whitfield once said, you know why animals act that way? It's because they know that you have a quarrel with their maker. They're rightly afraid. But there's a fear. And what's amazing about this passage is that despite all that, Jesus gets on this colt and he rides it peacefully into the city. D.A. Carson, who's a commentator, scholar, says this, in the midst then of this excited crowd, think about all the euphoria, all of the crazy that's happening, in the midst of this excitement, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. I mean, Jesus even heals the fear of animals. Now, I know that some of you don't care about animals, but God does. The Old Testament we read in the end times, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. Children will play with lions. Jesus is foreshadowing the power of his healing to repair even the rift with nature itself. That is truly amazing. Like if you don't care about that, you don't care about the things that God cares about. I mean, that's the attractiveness. That's the power of Jesus to heal. I mean, that's just, it's amazing to me. Like, I don't know if that amazes you at all. The inclusivity of Jesus, the attractiveness of Jesus to the broken, to fearful animals, like, that is truly amazing. And what it tells us about Jesus is that he didn't come for the strong. He came for the weak. And I don't know about you, thank God. I don't feel strong. (laughs) I don't know about you. If, If Like every other religion in the world seems like you have to have your PhD in spirituality to get to the top. It's elitist, right? It's for the strong. It's for those who can mentally mentally grasp, for those who are socially cool and fit in. Like Christianity, Jesus says, is for the weak, for the awkward. Flannery O'Connor, the famous Southern novelist, said, um, believe in Jesus and you will become weird. I think it was exactly, she said, um, believe in the truth and it will make you weird. I'm thankful for that. Because it means that anyone can get into the kingdom. And, and it's the fairest of all the religions because everybody gets in the same way. Everybody gets in by grace, through faith in Jesus. 
And so what I want us to see here is that the reason they were rejoicing is because Jesus held this kind of power and tension. We are naturally suspicious of power and authority. We built a country on it. Right? But Jesus uses his power to heal. He uses his power not to exploit, not to control, not to subjugate, not to oppress, but to empower and bring life. That's why they're rejoicing. Do you see Jesus that way? As one who's able to hold power over your life in such a way that he doesn't destroy you, but actually makes you who you were designed to be. That's the kingship of Jesus. I love Rebecca Pippert. She has a great quote here. Jesus knows he is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. And the great and joyful paradox is that while he totally transforms us, he makes us more ourselves than ever before. That's what's happening. The ministry of Jesus. That's what's leading people to rejoice. Now, I want you to understand something about this rejoicing. This rejoicing is not full. It's not complete. Because I know some of us, we read this and we're like, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that depth of understanding. But I, that's just not me. I'm in a place where I feel confused. I, I, I believe in Jesus, but he doesn't seem to be coming through for me in the way that I thought he would when I first started this journey with him. Now, and I want you to, don't miss this. This is not complete. This is not full. This is not perfect. This is riddled with and shot through with a, with a yawning chasm here. Because again, remember, there is a lot of confusion. And that's the, the vulnerability piece we need to understand here is that Jesus rode in to be a king, but not the kind of king they were expecting. Matter of fact, most of them, by the end of this, will see Jesus as a complete failure and will abandon him. They, they didn't get it. I mean, go back just to chapter 18. Let me read you verse 31 again. Jesus took the 12 aside before he started on this journey, the 17-mile military road to Jerusalem, which he did on purpose again. No one made him do this. He says this to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And what's going to be accomplished? Shalom? Insurrection? The replacement of Roman oppression? No, no, notice what he says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise. And the disciples are like, yeah, let's go. I'm in. No. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. Verse 11 of chapter 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was going to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He says, it's not how it's going to work. So I just love this. I don't know if this is encouraging to you, but Jesus does not ever give us what we think we need. He gives us what he thinks we need. They wanted a triumphant Messiah, but instead God was giving them a suffering Messiah. And, and in this, I think what we see in the disciples is confusion. We see disappointment. We see disillusionment. Even in the midst of the praise, there's kind of a, there's a brokenhearted happiness that we're going to see throughout the rest of Luke and into the Gospels. of Like, this is not what we thought we were getting ourselves into. 
And, and the reason is they misunderstood both the nature of God and the nature of their own darkness. They still didn't fully get it. What did they miss in all this euphoria? Even the disciples. Here's what they missed. They wanted God to come and bring judgment on the Romans. Because again, the darkness primarily is out there. They wanted a king to dispossess the Roman Empire. But God gives them what they need the most, not what they want. Because see, God couldn't bring judgment on the Roman Empire without bringing also judgment on them. Because they too were part of the problem. See, the disciples were not perfect. They were just as much a part of the problem and just as much a part of the darkness as anybody, and their sin also contributed to the ruin of the human race and the death of Jesus. So Jesus comes to liberate, not by bringing judgment on their enemies, but by bearing judgment for everyone. That's the beauty, really, of what Jesus is doing. Is he saying, I'm going to be a suffering king. If I only destroy the Romans, that only helps a small group of people right here in Palestine at one particular moment in history. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to come and I'm going to give you what you really need. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to die for the sins of the world so that not just one particular race of people can have access to liberation, but so that the entire world can experience salvation. That's what I'm coming to do because that's what you need the most. You need to be reconciled to God. You need your sins forgiven. If you're going to go out and move out into the world and be any kind of life-giving presence, there must be a dethroning of yourself as king and a replacement and a submission to me as the king of your life. That is the only way you will be able to wield any kind of meaningful power in the world as if it's matched with vulnerability and if it starts with the cleansing of your own heart. Now, that is extremely encouraging to me. The fact that the disciples had this half-baked understanding of Jesus should be encouraging. Because it means that even though I may not be experiencing the fullness of what I think God owes me right now in my life, all 38 years of me and all that I understand about the world, it means that God's doing something that's bigger than me, and he promises to do things for me that I can't see, but he will always fulfill Pastor Tim Keller in New York City says like this, God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God knows things that we don't know, and he always gives us what's in line with what he knows to be true. So with Garth Brooks, I say, thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> and none of you know what that means because you're not country music people, but that's okay. So faith, we see, doesn't preclude joy, doesn't preclude confusion, it doesn't preclude unmet expectations, doesn't preclude God feeling like an utter failure in our lives, rather, this is part of what it means to embrace a life of faith. We can rejoice while also going, I, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what God's doing. And so there's this tension that's always kind of happening inside of us, where sin and suffering and confusion are not eradicated, but we can still move towards God in faith. We're like Peter, right, in John chapter 8, where Jesus says, hey, man, you guys going to leave me too? Like, all the crowds walk away from Jesus because he doesn't meet their quid pro quo expectations of him. 
And he looks at the disciples and says, are you going away too? And Peter, I just love Peter. I want to hug Peter one day just because he gives me so much encouragement. He says, Lord, where else would we go? Not exactly a bold declaration of faith. You know, like, Jesus, you're our backup option. You're the fallback guy, Jesus. Like, nobody says that, like, at a marriage proposal. Where else am I going to go? And somehow that's enough faith to go, yeah, for for Jesus to say to Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On the back of a declaration of a fallback plan, I'm going to build my church. Praise God. That is encouraging to me. There's healing, and there's joy, and there's confusion, and it all mixes together. It's all part of the cocktail of what it means to be human in our journey with God. But we can still have faith. We can still see Jesus as king and continue to move towards him because it's not about me seeing him perfectly. It's about him seeing me, receiving me, accepting me welcoming me. His peace is not contingent on my ability to get it right, to understand everything, but rather on his larger purposes in the world. One last thing. We see the rejoicing. We also see the rebuke. Just real quick. We also see the rebuke. Jesus comes here to bring not just an inclusive, attractive ministry, but also an offensive one. He is forcing a confrontation here with the religious leaders. And it's interesting here, the Puritans used to have a saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And we see that here. The same proclamation that is good news to those who see their own inner darkness is a threat to those whose expectations of Jesus is that he would just be a good teacher that he would keep the status quo, that they could keep him in a box, right? Like every step here is calculated by Jesus to reveal his power, but also, don't miss this, to expose the true desires and the true longings of the religious establishment, of the Pharisees, scribes, and the chief priests, right? Kind of the holy trinity of the Jewish power structures in those days. And that's why, as everybody else is rejoicing, they're over in the corner like some children sulking and saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The only account we have where that's said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they too saw Jesus as king. And that's what made them Because they were, you remember, lovers of money, the Bible says. They were seekers of their own glory. They didn't want God's glory, they wanted their own. They were blind to their own inner darkness. Jesus called them blind guides, blind sages. These are the pastors and the seminary professors and the religious leaders of that day, the bishops. He says, you're blind to your darkness. And ultimately, they were in bed with the Roman Empire using religion as a means to build their own empire. Now, we can scoff and we can say, how dare they? But we all do that. We use religion to build our own platform, to build our own sense of power. We use God to get the other things that we really want. That's what they were doing. And so Jesus is essentially calling them out, riding into town saying, you must make a choice. You may no longer sit on the fence 
crown me or kill me. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Crown me as your king, you see that response of the disciples, or kill me. And that's exactly what begins to happen in the rest of the book of Luke. This is a pivot towards the rejection of Jesus, which is what makes Jesus weep here in just a few more verses, weeping over the city, saying, how I would have longed to gather you up, how I would have longed to see salvation come to this place, but you wouldn't have it. You'd rather sit back in your arrogance and your self-righteousness and your pride and your commitment to your own glory and rebuke me. But what I love about this is there's no tepid response of Jesus. You're not allowed to stay in the middle. Reynolds Price, who was a Duke professor of English, once said this about the triumphal entry. If 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding of this story's demand, his gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it really continues to be. It is either a work of madness or of blinding revelation. The act it portrays, the claims it advances from the very first paragraph demand that we make a hard choice. We take the gospel writer seriously. We must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly toward us. Does Jesus bring us a life-transforming truth? Or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? That's the decision he's wanting to force here. See, the religious leaders weren't doubting Jesus, questioning Jesus to understand him. They were doubting him to trap him because he threatened their power, their control, and their self-righteousness. There's two ways to be a doubter, and we want to welcome doubt at some. We love doubt. It's not, I mean, love. We, we're, we want to welcome that. To doubt is to be human. But there's a doubt that longs for truth that says, Lord, I, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Some of this doesn't make sense to me. And we want to be a place where it's okay to ask those questions. There's another kind of doubt, though, that's not seeking truth, but rather uses doubt as a Kevlar of self-protection that builds garrisons and forts around our doubt. It's not about seeking truth. It's just about being a doubter because in our hearts, we really don't believe, but we just don't want to come out and say it because it's the Midwest and nobody says they're like an atheist or something. And many of us, we've grown up in that. We've grown up in church. We went to religious grade school or college. And maybe now you just find yourself in a place of kind of this tepid response to Jesus. We're not mad at him, right? But there's, there's, there's just a nostalgia. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's just a myth from your childhood. And you go to church for your friends. You go to church feigning an interest in social justice because that's just what people my age do. Or you go to church uh, because there's some pretty girls here. What, I don't know why, why we go to church. I don't understand why American people go to church. Uh, I, you know, I, I am an American. I, 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 like, if I was not all in with Jesus, this would be the last place I would be right now, just so everybody knows. The problem with us is, as Jessica Meisner so aptly put it, I'm not an atheist. I'm just apathetic. Jesus invites us to move beyond our apathy. That's my prayer for us, is that we would move beyond apathy, that we would allow the offensiveness, the scandal of what Jesus is saying here, to his claim to be king of our lives, to demand from us our worship and our allegiance and our loyalty because he has been good to us and he laid down his life for us, that that would lead some of us out of our skepticism and out of the kind of doubt that's not really seeking truth 
into a doubt that leads us to truth and to the truth of Jesus, and that we would repent of our hard-heartedness, that we would turn away from our cold indifference, our superficial religiosity, that we'd, for the first time maybe in our lives, allow ourselves to be honest about where we're really at. I'm gl- I would be thankful to see more people get angry at Jesus. I'd be thankful to see at least it's not tepid, at least it's not indifferent, at least it's not icy, it's hot. I want to see people get hot, get hot and get mad. That's what the Psalms is all about. A bunch of people hot, mad, praying to God, God, why do you allow the world to be like this? I'd rather see that than a bunch of people going through the motions, singing songs with lips and hearts that don't really believe what they're singing, right? That's what Jesus came to do to force that kind of decision. And my prayer is not that you turn away from Jesus, right? I don't want more people turning away from him, although I know that's somewhat inevitable, but that Jesus would leverage that anger, that disappointment, that bitterness, and that guilt that is in your heart to lead you to a place of humility, confession. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I need you. I can't do this on my own. Where else, Lord, am I going to go? That's my prayer for us as a church, that we would learn with the disciples to rejoice, saying, blessed is the king, peace, heaven, and glory to God in the highest. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy that you give.